Thank you, listener, for tuning in to Mandem Making with former monk Rajan Shankara and myself, Rokas. I would like to introduce today's guest, Kevin Kwok, who focuses on solving meaningful problems and working with disruptive technologies. Some of his accomplishments include redesigning Uber's accessibility service in Toronto, launching and scaling rocket internets through Dora nationwide in Australia, which is the country's first on-demand food delivery platform, and launching the first international office in London for Omaze, which is an innovative charitable fundraising platform. He has also launched and scaled other startups in the mobility, food, social impact, and on-demand industries globally, and has lived and worked in Chicago, Toronto, Bangkok, Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney, and London. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, Kevin. Excited to be here. What an introduction. <laughs> that is awesome. Oh my God. <laughs> Sometimes you're just trying your best and it's uh, interesting to, to have a look back and realize, hey, you, you've actually done all right. You've, uh, you've gone through a lot and you've lived around the world. So don't be so hard on yourself. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to be here. Good for you for um, traveling uh, and living other places and seeing how other people, other cultures uh, are. That, that's important. So speaking of which, that's a good transition too. When we were arranging a time to record this podcast with Kevin, uh, he brought up an interesting topic we can begin today's discussion with. So considering our three very different backgrounds, how did our worldviews develop as well as fundamental points in our life? So who would like to begin? Our guest. Okay, that's a, that's a big question that I thought would be great to discuss. Um, worldview, I guess, the, the fundamental first seven years of life and your sort of major, major points of your life um, really went on to shape my worldview. So I was brought up in a Catholic school, had Buddhist parents. I would say I was agnostic or atheist most of my life. And uh, all my life, I actually struggled with chronic dermatitis. So it was quite traumatizing growing up and feeling so uncomfortable in your own skin and, and basically itching and scratching and feeling ugly for such a big part of your life. Um, naturally, you know, I was on, I was on strong drugs for most of my life and, uh, trusted in the medical system. And it, it wasn't until that failed. And I sort of had a bit of a breakdown at 18 with my grandma passing away and, and sort of the stress of final year exams and my skin at its worst, um, that I, I had a, a turning point. I thought if I want to change my life, I need to change my my approach to how I solve problems. So I think from that moment on, I thought, you know what, just get good grades, set yourself up well for the future, and uh, just let, let go of everything you think you know, especially around diet and, and skincare and mental health, and let's start from scratch. So I think because I wasn't able to experience life very fully, uh, for the first 18 years of my life, it, it created this natural curiosity, this natural breaking of convention, this natural questioning of things. And uh, I feel lucky to have been able to work all over the world and, and in such a variety of jobs that 
as an operations and logistics manager, essentially it's, it's about solving problems. And I don't think I would have developed such a natural and innate strength to do that if it wasn't for my lifelong need to solve my own problem in which I constantly needed to understand the variables affecting my skin. So my worldview, combination of a, a very tough experience, very traditional first-generation immigrant parents, um, you know, living in the society we do today and just having an interest in philosophy, physics, psychology, sociology, just a, a curiosity around the world that sort of uh, informed my worldview, which I would say is constantly changing. Um, and I'm, I'm just trying to be a better person day by day. That's, a, that's about it. What, 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 uh, what's the most recent thing to challenge your worldview? It's a good question, Ryzen. Um, the most recent thing that challenged my worldview, I, I guess with COVID-19 happening, it, I think it changed society's worldview on, on the stability of, of jobs and the interconnectedness of all our global systems. I don't think we can take things for granted. I think it's showing the, the impact of having such an unequal society and inequality in income, in access to healthcare, in trust in the, in the health system and in the science and in, in the government knowledge. I feel like we're at a, a, a turning point where the structures that are organizing society are coming to a, to a need for change because capitalism has, I feel like it's run its course. Oh, very interesting. I, I still believe there are elements of capitalism that, that are quite productive, um, but especially when you have AI and, and such large corporations, the, I think if it continues as it does, you will have an increasing, increasingly unequal distribution of wealth. So, and I think capitalism doesn't handle well certain areas like in the environment and, um, and public health uh, and, and some measures of social welfare. Does, does any of that impact your uh, career or uh, let me say it like this, um, as a problem solver, does anyone ask you to solve political problems or have you been able to uh, stay away from that side of life publicly? Political problems. I, I guess uh, in the tech world, you know, having worked for Uber and um, Omaze and Fedora, the extent of the, the political side is, you know, when you are starting new disruptive technologies in markets where the, the legalities might not be risen yet or they, they haven't caught up, um, needing to understand the mobility laws and um, and gray areas in a maze in terms of uh, lottery versus uh, raffle or draw legislation. That's, that's sort of the extent in which politics is involved. But um, I, I was interested in technology because I thought it was a scalable way to solve problems. Um, and, and I looked up to, to you know, the Zuckerbergs and the, and the Elon Musks of the world world rather than to to major politicians so I, th I think that's probably why i got into tech cool
Sorry, Rokas, I probably took your took your question. <laughs> took what, sir? Emailed your your uh, your uh, topics, but I, I I figured I had creativity, uh, creative license. No, that's awesome. So. Yeah, we're just talking. Go ahead, keep going, Rokas. Um, How about you, Rush? Rush, we need to we need to hear about your world for Oh, you want to hear about me? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, I'd like to. Yeah. <clears throat> <clears throat> what shaped my worldview? Yep. And maybe how it was impacted or, or shaped by uh, by the recent events. Well, I think everyone who, who has listened to the podcast um, long enough uh, knows that my worldview was shaped in in the beginning by living or being raised in a home just by a single parent. So I don't I. I'm a believer that single parent homes are the one of the most destructive aspects of society. And <clears throat> what that's what helped, you know, drive me to um, basically growing up on my own and being a criminal uh, for years and in the pre high school and high school period, uh, living in my mother's basement um, and thinking that manhood was how how much legal destruction I could could cause um, so that was the first um, that was probably the first 17 years of my life um, after all the basic stuff of just growing up and, and getting to uh, you know 13 14 years old and then it went sort of uh, arrived from there um, and then I'm, the next thing to shake that up and change things was my brush with law enforcement and, and being uh, almost going to jail and being given a second chance. And uh, that, I don't know if I, I, I don't know if I ever told that story on the podcast. I'm sure I have. Yeah, you have. Yeah. yeah. So that that kind of flipped the switch for me and, and took me down the entrepreneurial road, uh, which was an asphalt company. And then that's where I got some of my early uh, responsibility and discipline teachings from my first mentor. Um, and then, of course, so that then led to being uh, unhappy with life and realizing that money um, wasn't the root of happiness and uh, going on to being a monk, which then changed everything and added um, all the philosophy um, into my life and the psychology. Uh, not physics though, I don't know anything about physics. <laughs> um, and so the current climate um, I think I think all right, so I given my background of uh, th philosophy and theology, <clears throat> I have to I don't have to, but I just lean heavily on the fact that I see things uh, in cycles. So none of this is actually, to me, uh, that, that different than a previous cycle of another 
um, pandemic or, and then uh, the, the political arena, you know, political upheavals have, have happened uh, throughout history um, around the world. And, and it's how nations have been formed. And um, I, I see things, I guess, a bit zoomed out and you, you can continue to live your life. You don't have to really, you can choose to engage or you can uh, in, engage in it, or you can engage in your own uh, life and family and well-being. And uh, I recommend a mixture of both so that you know what's going on, um, but also that you don't go crazy from it. Because if you pay too much attention to um, socio-political issues and you're not getting paid for it, you would go crazy. Uh, and so I recommend uh, having information and knowing what's going on, but also realizing that, uh, you know, the forest can teach you more probably in a few minutes than a lifetime of politics. Well said. I, I, uh, I think it's, it's interesting. It's, it's one of the few events that as a, as a humanity, we, we face together and, and it doesn't matter how much money you have or um, what gender you are, it, it affects everyone. And, and it shows how if you organize the systems in society to, to be just in time production um, and not everyone has access to healthcare, then it, and it affects everybody. So I'm, I'm hopeful for this event. And I think I've seen a humanity and this interconnectedness in people that I haven't seen before. Uh, people, you know, when they're forced inwards and having to isolate and, and not just constantly chasing something material, they, they've had to think, okay, what is, what is important to me? You're facing your mortality. You are stripped of all your, of all your luxuries and, and you have to think what's important. So I, I hope, I hope the, uh, the world will be a bit more conscious um, after this event. I agree. I, I do think that uh, <clears throat> I, I do think it's interesting, especially with the heavy uh, push towards um, sanitation, you know, cleaning things more than usual. Uh, it may seem basic, but I think that's actually going to reduce the amount of other illnesses that go around um, mm. in public transport and everything like that. So uh, it may be a mundane silver lining, but I think that'll actually have pretty big consequences. Uh, but yeah, you hope that everyone uh, sees life uh, as precious uh, and, and uses any kind of global situation to turn inward more. I like your, your uh, phrasing of that. And I'm, I'm not so much, uh, uh, I, 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 I do well, two things. I do highly identify with your, your skin story. I, I admire that um, going through physical pain to um, uh, find the truth and kind of change your um, circumstances. Um, I think we can all relate to that, even though we don't know it. But uh, I'm not, I'm not I, at this point, I'm not so well versed in politics, um, but I'm not ready to give up on capitalism just yet. I'll put it like that. Oh, I, I, I'm not saying I'm giving up on capitalism. I'm just saying uh, capitalism 
Uh, and I think America is a great example of this, capitalism to the extreme, in a world um, where you are not accounting for the cost of environmental degradation um, and you're, you're allowing pure, pure capitalistic ways of organizing an economy, it will create very unequal income over time. And, um, and I guess social instability is, is a possibility. So I think you're seeing that. But I think capitalism as, as a whole it has been very successful in, in organizing society. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm, I'm no expert in politics. Um, <laughs> I'm probably a bit more of an expert in pain. Um, and I'm, I'm actually curious how, how you think of pain, Rajan. Um, you know, what, what's some of the greatest pain, either physically or, or mentally, that you've, that you've been through? Um, physical, no, uh, the sleep deprivation has been one of the hardest things I've ever had to do physically uh, and mentally, because it goes into both, uh, and the, and it makes you realize how the two are tied together pretty strongly. Um, not being allowed to sleep is, is, uh, it takes, it takes the, your, it takes a toll on your body at first, and then your body becomes numb, and then it goes to your brain, and it affects your, your ability to cognize things. So uh, that, I mean, food, not eating was, was easier than not sleeping. So uh, nine months of sleep deprivation was, was uh, probably, I would say, the greatest pain I've gone through. Was that when you were in, you were in jail? Is that right, Rajan? Or? No, I was in the monastery at that time. Luckily, in, in, in the jail cell, they never made me not sleep. <laughs> oh, okay. But, oh, so that's part of monk training, is that you don't sleep. I, I didn't realize that. Or, or you don't sleep very long. Yeah, I was given the... Uh, so I had to... Um, I was allowed four hours a day, uh, broken up into two two-hour naps. Wow. wow. Um, yeah, it was, that's not normal monk training. I, I think maybe in, in, um, Shaolin monasteries in, in Asia, but as far as India and Europe and the U S monasteries, uh, aren't usually structured like that. So I was in a militaristic style uh, structure and the, the aspect on the physical hardship was uh, very important to um essentially transcending uh the physical body and then the, the ego eventually so do you do you think that was the purpose of of this sleep deprivation to test the limits of your mind and and what you and the amount of pain you can physically go through oh absolutely um you know you you wake up in the middle of the night for the sole purpose of of um meditating doing yoga in the temple uh, you're the only monk up uh, at that time and uh, if you're on that discipline um, so from midnight to 3 a.m you're you're keeping the temple vibration alive and, and doing your inner work and, and physical cleaning and stuff like that um, but yeah if, if you can harden steel uh, you can eventually make it carry a heavier load so that was the idea and, and it, it certainly worked um for for the 
for the, a person who, who benefits from that type of training. It doesn't work for everyone. It didn't work for every monk. Uh, a lot of monks, um, a lot of monks uh, requested to, to not go through that training once they start. And that happens. So in the monastery I was in, uh, going through with that type of thing uh, gives you more uh, respect. I wish there was a way for you to experience sleeplessness in a way I've experienced. If there was a, a virtual reality world where I could replay my sleepless nights and, and I could exchange that for, for your nights, that would be a fascinating experience. Um, I would say for 18 years, I didn't sleep properly. And I, that, that's interesting because you know that you are going into this training and, and that you won't be able to sleep very well. But I went to bed hoping I would have good sleep, but knowing that I could become very itchy overnight and my skin, you know, it was affected by the humidity, by stress, by diet, by the bedding, so many factors, but consistently I would have woken up in the middle of the night, either very itchy or there's sort of dead skin all over the place and, and blood everywhere. And, and then you have to wake up in the morning for school when you, when you haven't slept properly. It's, I don't know how I didn't go insane. <laughs> I'll, take, um, I'll take my discipline over yours. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I survived. I mean, yeah, that's that's probably you have to. You, you literally have to grow a tough skin. Um, I, I would say I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't change it, and I think it's given me meaning in life because because of the amount of pain I've gone through. I think it's my, it's my calling to help others and not have to go through that. Uh, and there's so much knowledge that you acquire and, and sort of wisdom that you wouldn't get in medical school. And, and just looking at the way the medical system is structured and the amount of time doctors have with patients, it's not structured in a way that you could systematically understand everything affecting someone's skin. So Skin, skin is fascinating. You know, it's uh, it's a way to excrete toxins. It's it's protecting your body. It's the biggest it's organ, right? The biggest organ for touch. For it, it has its own microbiome. Um, okay. It's protecting from infection. So it's it's amazing. But I think yeah, not not being able to sleep is I think it's one of the methods of torture that that people use, don't they? Mm, yeah, it's uh, but so. It's like we all go through some kind of pain in life, but, but do we all extract the same um, meaning behind it? So it's, a, it's good that you're able to um, look on it the way you do. A lot of people would say, like they, they would uh, resent something or they would hold a grudge um, and they would live with them and uh, even if they got better. Uh, so that's... And I'm sure you you understand that, and then you you've seen that, um, and I guess that's why you know you and I, you know, speak the way we do. It's we're trying to tell people you're going through something, but it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be um, in vain. It it can be 
can actually be a, a great teacher. For sure. Yeah. I, um, I think if you make life just about yourself and your own life is not going how you expect it to be, or you face greater hardships than everybody else, then you feel like, why me? Or why is it? Why do I have to go through so much pain? What, what is the meaning of this? But if you make your life more than about your own life and you use the difficulties as an impetus to help change other people's lives, I, th I think that's what ultimately gives it meaning. Yeah, um, agreed. You know, I've spoken with people who have gone through rape, um, experienced witnessing torture or, or being tortured themselves and uh, I guess when I look at the commonality between how they get through it it's from thinking beyond themselves um, and I think a, a good sign is of healing or, or acceptance in a way is is wishing for nothing to be different you know for a long time I thought why me and, and I would trade anything or do anything to get rid of my skin problems but if I look at how I am as a person, uh, the, my mental state, my, my ability to tolerate pain, and I compare it to everyone else around me in my family and, and my uh, friends. It's, it's amazing how much I've, I've grown in comparison to others who haven't had that level of hardship. And I didn't make the connection till a, till a year or two ago, but you know, all, all my jobs in, in operations and, and tech come through being able to solve problems. And what I didn't realize was that having such a difficult autoimmune condition where there are countless variables affecting your skin, I was training my, my brain to be able to form models of the world. Um, so I'm so grateful for that in a sense. And, um, and I remember just the first time I, I, I was sitting meditating in Toronto and I, and it, I think it was uh, something, a meditation about gratefulness. And I remember thinking, you know what, I, I haven't been able to sit still for 18 years of my life. So I'm, I'm very grateful to even to just be able to sit still and, and not be scratching and have a calm state of mind. It's, I think everything's in perspective. Yeah. How about you, Rokas? Uh, I agree with that. I agree with all that. Uh, about what, Kevin? When you said, "How about you?" What do you mean? How um, how do you how do you view hardships and and pain and? I you put it really well, and it's something that Rajan teaches as well. That by yeah, if you go through those hardships, you go through all those things to then be able to help your community after yeah, if you learn those lessons. And I agree with that. Um, I also didn't really see it like that before, up until probably a few years ago. Um, and it's just a much better way of seeing life because you're not, I'm not sure of the right word, not bogged down by the negative. I can't think of a different phrase for it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you feel more, I guess, enlightened that you know that those hardships, you can extract value from them. That, yeah, you can learn from them. And especially just listening to your story now uh, makes me think like I haven't experienced anything like that really. But 
from the hardships that I do have, yeah, I can see them as learning experiences. It's all different, right? Like you, you, you have, I'm sure you have um, psychological um, challenges that you've had to go through for the first, uh, mm -hmm. what are you like nine? 20 now. 20. So in the 20 years that you've lived, it may not be physical, um, but mental, psychological, familial, You've had that kind of pain to experience. Yeah, I need to think about, I, I need to look back on my past more and consider how, how that has helped me become who I am now. Well, it may not, this. it may not, how should I put this? You see, we're very old people um, and uh, you're a very young man. You may be actually, you know, going through the middle of the very thing that makes you who you will be, not who you are yet. Mm -hmm. In other yeah, words, for sure. you're not done hurting yet. For sure, for sure. But well, Raj, would you say you're done hurting? I, I don't everyone. feel like I'm, I'm not done yet. I, I feel like I am I'm much more of who I fully am, but I, I still feel like there is so much growth. So uh, I think Rokas at 20 is far more immature than, than I was. I was. I was partying at festivals and doing drugs. And, uh, oh, Rokas yeah. is a for <laughs> his age. Um, yeah. The, it's a good question. Am I done hurting or am I done going through pain? Well, absolutely not. If that were the case, I'd be dead uh, because we're born here to experience uh, the challenges, hardships, and pain. However, am I done um, treating pain as a uh, spontaneous um, and, and um, secular uh, purpose? Yes, I, I no longer experience anything the same way. And I'm sure like you, you don't either that uh, I'm sure you, you, you've shifted your perspective yeah. enough to where uh, you experience what's happening from an entirely different set of eyes and because of your past, right? So from that sense, we're, we're, we're no longer the same person. For sure, I think just the ability to view pain in its full complexity, in its growth-giving ability, in the fact that it's part of life, in the fact that without pain, without evil, there's no, there's no love, there's no, it, it's two ends of a spectrum that need to exist. Um, if there was no possibility for someone to do evil, uh, then I don't think their love would matter as much. It's the fact that they can perform an evil act and in spite of that, choose not to that makes it even more powerful. And I think a big part of my life and maybe for many people is that they think life should constantly be joyous, happy moments. And so therefore when they're confronted with uh, a challenge or pain, they think it's why me and, and that it's out of the ordinary. Whereas I would say the shift that I've now got is that life is constantly changing and it's unpredictable and a big part of it 
is just going through pain, going through joy, going through love, going through a full spectrum of emotions and just to deal with things as they come. I, I don't expect every single moment of my life to be joyous. Um, and I, don't, I also don't think that's the meaning of life. Um, Neither do I. Yeah. I never, I never, and I didn't mean to imply that if I did. Oh, no, no. I understand what you meant. Uh, I, I think Rokas is at a different, different stage, but I think it's very admirable. You know, I think he was talking about... Um, one of his classmates that had depression and he started this podcast because he thought if you know one or two of his classmates could find this information useful which typically is not commonly taught at university um, then it would make everything and the amount of effort for this podcast to work um, worth it who, who did the podcast on depression Oh no! I I think it was a conversation we had, Ruckus, that um, yeah, um, the we was there, had a, a classmate that had depression. Is, is that right? Yeah, uh, similar. Yeah, we've done an episode on it because um, oh, this Rush, it was a while ago. Yeah, yeah, this podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, actually, I think more people should uh, should try to express their challenges and just in expressing it it kind of helps it um see you reveal it in a new light um god university students especially should be gathering regularly to express how they feel about things because uh, you keep it inside for too long you end up going crazy wow actually great idea i could probably do something like that in my university yeah uh, yeah, that was going to thinking. Okay, I need to consider that. Write it down. Yep. <laughs> I actually will, yeah. I, I wonder why though. Why, why is it so hard for men today to express themselves? You know, it feels like we're not in a system that encourages that. Um, you know, I know in, in all my previous jobs, I have been encouraged to be logical, rational, um, and sort of suppress my more creative, spiritual, um, lateral thinking sides. Why do you think, uh, Rajan or Rokas, that men in today's society are not encouraged to, to speak more openly? I think that um, men have the burden of maintaining order. Um, and if they're somehow out of order, then their, their, their structure from which they came from is falling apart. And no man uh, wants, to be a, wants to be perceived as falling apart. I think there's some kind of inherent uh, or innate uh, uh, presupposition within us that says, I am composed, I'm put together, and that's just no matter what's going on. And there's a certain amount of uh, respect for that. There's, I have a certain amount of, uh, you know, admiration for anyone who can um, withhold their their structure while going through the storm. Uh, but there's a there's a there's a I think because you were saying that universities fail to express certain things they need to the students, 
And it's true for life itself. We, we fail to receive, men fail to receive the teachings that, uh, you know, self-expression is um, uh, courageous and, and beneficial. And there's no one uh, now more than ever, there are less role models. There's no one um, speaking out to, to younger people or there isn't as many as there used to be in the tribe. Uh, so I think it's a historical degradation of uh, the tribe and our elders and our communities and things like that and our extended families. In some cultures, you still have the extended family, but it, in, in most Western societies where that has uh, diminished, the wise men are gone, the, the fathers aren't the same, uh, aren't the same, uh, they're not in, as intellectually um, astute and more people are having children out of out of uh, wedlock and um, you're kind of losing culture that people uh, used to have in regards to breeding horses. Uh, people used to breed humans uh, to have solid structures and support systems and uh, that's no longer the case. So we're having to deal with um, the era of um, uh, teachers, role models, and historical figures uh, giving podcasts and doing public, you know, speaking events and having these uh, smaller circles of attention instead of um, you're the son, you learn what the father learned, and, and mom is there to support, um, and then his father uh, is a part of it. We just don't have that uh, anymore, I don't think. I guess many people get their information online um, yeah. and, and that itself is quite curated, um, whether it's through Facebook or, or through ins Instagram influencers. Yeah. Uh, having said that, I think the access to information that we have today and the, the, all the different mediums for communication, whether they're podcasts or, or YouTube videos or, or online courses, which are cheaper than ever, um, we have at our fingertips access to the world's information in a way that 50 years ago, you know, it, your, your view of the world was mainly coming from highly curated news outlets. So I think even though we've, we've moved towards a much more superficial material culture, the thing it does allow for is greater collaboration, greater sort of bouncing around of ideas and with flights cheaper than ever with the internet cheaper than ever. Um, and, and the ability and these formation of these mega cities, you're getting people crossing paths and sharing ideas that typically might not have been, been able to. So I think that's, that's the exciting thing. And that's one of the things I love about living in London is just the, the diversity of people and, and ideas from that. Absolutely. I mean, 100% uh, global connectivity and that instant connectivity with the globe is, uh, is an amazing, profound thing that can be used to change your life for the better and change the life of your, your, uh, your entire community. Um, we also can't forget the power of reading books. Uh, I think a lot of people um, in the digital era are taught that you know, we have this instant connectivity to the world's teachings at your fingertips. Um, I'm not so sure that that replaces the history 
and the strength of a, of a good book. I think it's, it's important to do both, of course. Uh, to leave one or the other, I think, would be silly. And uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm not so quick to um, say that, to depend on um, the connectivity part of knowledge. I would, I would start a human with, um, with the ability to read and, and, and critically think and then let yeah. them expose them to connectivity. Because without that, with just connectivity, I think you're, you're being set up for um, a bit of a addictive or uh, AD, ADD uh, brain. And I think that's what's happening. You know, the first thing people do when they wake up is check their social media. And when you're constantly training your brain to have scattered attention, your ability to critically think and read and pay attention to chapters at a time is greatly diminished. And that's, that's a shame because there's such great shared knowledge that has lasted the test of time in, in books. And, um, and yeah, we're now we're consuming quick, superficial, instantaneous media over a lot of knowledge. Timeless. Yeah, timeless things. Um, timeless. Yeah. yeah, we're seeing we're seeing the instant gratification um, power over the uh, overpower the, the ability to have timeless teachings. Um, so it's a double-edged sword. Everything is a double-edged sword, I think. I mean, and, and I think that's actually an easy way to explain most of theology um, and mythology, which everything is essentially du a dual nature or, or duality. You have um, that which is good for you can also be bad for you. The world yeah. of, uh, of constant novelty and anomaly can either change you for the better or it could kill you. Um, and that's, I think what you were saying earlier ties into that. That's why we're alive. We're alive to see how far we can go without being killed prematurely and, and how much better we can get with each um, year and then <clears throat> contribute and, and give back to um, a younger generation, be a better father, be a better mother um, than, than, than yours prior. But yeah, that's a skill that I'm worried that is not being taught enough uh, in schools and universities, the ability to critically think, um, especially in today's age, where it's, it's difficult to separate politics from truth and to separate financial agendas with, with truth. How, how do you think a young person growing up should, uh, is able to develop the ability to think critically is, is it from experience or is it from reading a variety of sources having different life experiences how how would you train train someone to think independently or critically rajan i i think uh you can take two ways so socrates said that knowledge is not learned it is remembered um and in most of Plato's dialogues, you have this question of, can you learn something or do you just naturally have it within you? Is it an innate um, something in your genes? Is it an innate property that you're born with from, from lifetime to lifetime through reincarnation? And um, 
So I think there's two aspects to it. You have to let, you have to let a soul um, go through its journey, how it's going to go through. And you can only manipulate that journey so much. And the, the small power you do have over another being, um, I think should be spent wisely with as much um, um, creativity as possible. And it starts with um, being socialized with other people. And then it, it starts with uh, discipline through activity and then with the brain and through, through small bits of knowledge. Um, other than that though, you know, I think you have a good maybe seven years uh, with a kid and then um, they're going to become an individual based on those first seven years. And we know that, I mean, even five years, seven years is, is giving it too much. Within five years, uh, you have that much window uh, to uh, sort of inculcate these uh, or inject these, these bits of information that you have. Uh, but after that, the individual takes over and I think too much and you'll, 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 um, tr you know, tromp on their, their freedom and then too little and they'll, they'll, as like I was, they'll, they'll become a criminal. So the first seven years, no, no phones. And, uh, <laughs> I, don't, yeah, I, don't, I don't think I would allow my children to have phones in the first seven years while they're, I, I don't, I wouldn't want their brain to develop that sort of short, short term attention scattered thinking. Um, I feel lucky to have witnessed, you know, smartphones and the internet come in. So I remember, what it's like to you know have deep conversations without everyone on their phones and uh and just for everyone to be present whereas i'm i'm concerned for the younger generation where they're native to technology um where you witness groups together all on their phones and, and not being able to to be human and, and connect deeply and that's the argument that um people have for not wanting to have children you know how can i how can i bring a child into this world um, where the world itself is so chaotic and unstable. But the truth is, as I was saying earlier with cycles, the world has always been chaotic and unstable, and that's the nature of the world. That's actually the most beautiful aspect of life itself, is, is to wield a sword and go straight into fire, you know, knowing that you could either die or make it out alive. And that's the point. So the, 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 the beneficial nature of chaos and instability um, is, uh, is perfect. And to have, to have a child in that experience and to raise uh, a philosopher perhaps who, who understands that same principle is, um, is going to give you um, the, the, the essential societal purpose that you have as the responsibility of a human. Your other purpose is within, and it's to enlighten yourself. So we have this dual-fold nature of, um, or meaning uh, of, of enlightening ourselves, you know, as an individual, and then sharing that information with our offspring. And I'm maybe I'm thinking more along those lines now that you know I'll have a son in January, but um, wow, risk. Yeah, I did not know that. <laughs> so, um, 
it, it's, it's whenever, and I get that a lot. Young people come to me and say, well, I'm not going to have kids and everything. It's like, well, how do you expect the world to get better if you don't better yourself and then bring someone into the world who will think like you and, and then greater? So it's, 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 the, it's the antithesis of the idea, you know, to not want to bring kids in. It's just like, well, you're part of the problem then. So you're either, you know, making it worse by um, avoiding uh, the, in, the, the spreading of, of intelligence um, or you're, you're contributing and, and becoming wise yourself and then training others. And, and as we said earlier, um, in, as you said, Kevin, that training other people is one of the greatest joys in life uh, after um, becoming intelligent yourself. It's, it's uh, you know, the, the, in mythology, the sage, you know, once, you, once the hero goes through the descent and the ascension through knowledge and wisdom becomes the sage, the sage isn't finished. He then makes other heroes, and then that hero becomes a sage. Something like say, yeah, it's. It, it, I think it's actually one of the best times in in history to be alive. You know, the the threat of us dying from from war or famine, uh, are lower than ever. The, the number of people in in poverty is is lower than ever. The access to information. Um, yeah, humanprogress.org um, for everyone who needs a bit of positive information. That's a website that is dedicated to spreading all the positive things going on. Humanprogress.org. I'm yeah. check out as well. I mean, I think, yeah, the, the news constantly focuses on fear and negativity. And, and I think that is affecting a lot of people's worldviews to think the world is, is so messed up. And I, I guess in some ways it is. But if you look around, you know, it's quite a miracle that we are even able to have this conversation in terms of uh, technology, the internet, the development of language. Um, you know, I think we, we take for granted everything that humanity has achieved. And I think it's, it's important to step back once in a while and just marvel at everything we've created. Um, having said that, it doesn't mean we are anywhere near done or that we are advanced as a species. Uh, but we've come, I think we've come a long way in, in a short amount of time. Uh, but there's definitely a lot of challenges in, in the environment and in the ways of organizing our political structures and economic structures, especially in a world being changed by technology where the laws are not and the ways in which you enact laws and the speed of that is not keeping up with the pace of change of technology itself. So I think the ways of organizing society, that, that'll be really interesting to see how, uh, how it's shaped in, in the next 10 to 30 years. Well, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and, and the, I'm, I'm just flipping through this, this book I just finished on, um, uh, classical liberalism and it shows that every metric of society is, is better by, by all, um, accounts. Uh, uh, so every, uh, from economics to infant mortality to the amount of millionaires we now ha have on the planet, um, to hunger, to wars, violence, 
um, uh, equality of gender, equality of race. Every metric we have for pr progress is, is, is far and wide better and pales in comparison to 100 years ago even. And, and, and to, to discount that um, is to just be a, uh, a, a, an intellectual puppet of whatever mm -hmm. news popped up on your phone. So How about right, the, the stat on, um, on death by, um, by suicide? Has, do we have a mental health crisis or what are those stats looking like? Do you know? Um, I don't know myself. I don't know this, the data on, on, on that, but I, well, well, why don't we look it up real quick? Um, mental health statistics. I, I believe that is on the rise and I believe, um, at least with autoimmune conditions, they are also on the rise, likely due to the, the, the agricultural farming and, and the pesticides used affecting the immune system. Um, so, God, the numbers are kind of buried. It's okay. Open. I got it. So, the mental health of the nation may have declined in the past 20 years. Suicide rates per 100,000 people have increased, though, to a 30 year high. Substance abuse, particularly of opiates, has become epidemic. So it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? it it's uh, by every standard of quality of life, um, it, it has generally increased, material wealth has increased, and yet uh, deaths by suicide is trending the opposite way. Yeah, I think, I think people, um, I think it's funny, yeah, you're right. I think people used to be happier when we had less. Uh, and so, yeah, are we, do we know the consequences? I think this is a very Jordan Peterson argument. Um, <laughs> do we know the consequences of what we're doing <laughs> with, with so much power and global connectivity? And I actually write about this in my, my uh, a book I'm writing right now. Um, it's, it's just, you know, we're using apps to get better focus and uh, mindfulness. But what happens when the app goes away? Um, what happens if the phone doesn't connect or, or we can't access that information? Do we then revert back to um, mental instability? And I think it's kind of, it's, um, uh, it's an illusion, I think, using, using digital um, accessibility for uh, better uh, mental stability. I don't, I don't think it's a good idea. That means yeah. that means um, uh, a headspace. That means even the the work I do. I have an internet meditation academy. I'm even as far as that to be to be morally um, honest. You know that's that's your your it sh it should be a device that you learn from. But then you should also be given the power to be independent and cut it off and say yeah. okay I can now 
um, I can now meditate without that that device, and I'm not dependent on it. So you think our dependency on technology um, could have a, a large impact on this correlation with increased depression or suicide levels? Oh, sure. Um, you know, like for example, um, the suicide uh, rate and the addict, addiction to opiates went up uh, dozens of uh, percents via just from COVID. And um, a lot of that was probably from, I'm just speculating here, but a lot of that was probably just from um, too much engagement with mainstream media and being worried about, you know, getting fear um, instead of uh, reason and logic. And perhaps we're losing out this sense of community. Um, you know, we're living denser than ever. We're not living in our group of 150 where everyone knows everyone else and they all have their role and they feel connected to their community. Instead, your community is, uh, is the, the, the populace of people using different social media sites. And, and a lot of people are gaining their, their validation from, from strangers, really and sort of comparing their life with only the highlights from other people's lives. <laughs> right. Like I, I was lucky enough to, um, to work as a brand ambassador where, you know, they, they hired a lot of models and musicians and actors uh, to represent brands. And I, I was part of a few agencies. I, I think mainly just because, okay, one, they needed diversity in the casting. Um, and then, there was a lot of promotion of uh, tech goods. So uh, I was there to provide the information about the products. Uh, but what I noticed is that they would Photoshop, uh, they would Photoshop people's faces and bodies uh, when they were promoting the products and they would have, they would hire influencers to make it look like it, it came across very randomly, but everything was staged. So, I think even though we have all this material wealth, it also increases our comparison. And I think most people, maybe they, they derive their level of progress with that of their peers. So objectively, even if they have greater progress or wealth than ever, in comparison, um, in what they're shown by the media to aspire for. You know, it's, it's not good enough just to have a, a six-figure salary anymore. A lot, a lot of people are, are being pressured to be millionaires or, or billionaires. And we put on a pedestal fame and power and, and money rather than character and ability to think critically. And some social media sites, I would say it, it brings out the superficial sides of people. You know, a gym selfie or a half naked photo will get you much more likes than a quote from Aristotle. So, yeah. um, <laughs> something I often uh, quip about online is that uh, it's, you know, it's okay to not own your own business in 2020. If you don't have to be an entrepreneur, you can, mm. You can work for someone else. You can have a, a fulfilling career, and most people have have uh, fulfilling careers that we need. And society would collapse if everyone was an entrepreneur. Um, you know, we're forgetting about 
the teachers who work for who work for schools, the people that clean that work for states and counties, um, the doctors, lawyers, hospitals, everyone who who works for a firm or a big organization. Um, that stuff is so valuable, and I'm not sure how beneficial it is to have this uh, mindset of, um, like you're saying, uh, become a millionaire. It's like, well, why don't you start with having the ability to give value and see if you can, um, you know, gain wealth in, as time goes on. And in fact, probably one of the safest ways and the most conservative ways to gain wealth is to do multiple things, um, meaning have a career and then on the side, do two or two, three things, two or three things, that bring in income as well. That's probably one of the safest ways to uh, get, become a millionaire. And in fact, some of the millionaires I know uh, started out by having a solid career that got them uh, several hundred thousand dollars a year. And then on the side, they wrote a book, then they did something else, or they worked with a product, or they, they worked with an app. Um, and then that kind of tipped them over the edge and made them a millionaire. Yeah, having said that, I, I don't think everyone should just aspire to being a millionaire or rich. I think if you if you love to do something and, and even if you're not earning that much comparatively, if it gives you joy, you should. there's no problem in, in doing that. I don't think everyone should be aiming to be a millionaire. Having said that, I don't think there's anything wrong with having money. I just think it's it's bad to pursue money for the sake of it. I think if you solve a problem for many people, naturally you will accumulate wealth but it's it's more interesting to be to, to have a problem you're that interested in and and having money come as a consequence of solving a problem mm -hmm. for a lot of people rather than pursuing money for the sake of having money absolutely yeah and i think you know this this idea of comparison you know my whole life it's it's been about competition and comparison i, I went to a selective school where every single assignment I get back, I would be graded, you know, I would be ranked among my peers. And my final mark out of 100, again, that is weighted against your peers in the state. Um, I think with especially with Asian parents, you know, if you get into a particular university, it'll be so and so's kid got into an even better university. So there's this, this, this idea of benchmarking your progress based on your results in comparison to your peers, I think is very toxic. And even though I was naturally able to compete and do quite well, and, and I, I guess I was quite a competitive and many people even called me arrogant very early, much earlier, I would constantly be called arrogant and I thought they were just jealous of my results. Um, but over time I've realized, yes, I was arrogant and, um, it's, it's not a competition. Life is, everyone's life experience is so different and the trajectory you will have. Um, to me, I no longer compare with anyone but myself. I, I just ask myself to constantly seek growth and to do my best. And sometimes I'll fail and, and sometimes things will work out. But now I'm only comparing with myself. Yeah, I, I don't and, know and to me, that's, that's actually a good argument for capitalism. In what way? That is capitalism in a, in a nutshell. It's, in, it's power of the individual to uh, uh, have the pursuit of, of, of life, liberty, and happiness.
true. So from one end of the spectrum, um, it was, you know, ideologically, I felt like you, you were against um, the, you know, the idea of capitalism when you first, when we first started talking, but then as you talk more and you speak about the glories of the individual, it sounds like you, you make the perfect capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not against capitalism. I just see the advantages in a capitalistic system, the uneven advantages that you can accumulate. Um, so, and I've seen the advantages I've had. Um, I just think in society, everyone needs to be granted a certain level of, of access to education and healthcare. Um, and from there, everyone's to, to make the best of their own life. I, I think when you don't guarantee these things, society will become too unequal over time. Um, so we're talking about <laughs> equality of um, uh, opportunity, opportunity versus outcome. I, I exactly. I don't believe in equality of outcome. Okay, that would be dangerous. Equality of opportunity. Everyone should have, especially in relation to uh, education and healthcare. Um, I, I also don't believe you should provide everyone too much. Like if, if it swings too much to a socialist system, then you lose the incentive um, to pursue your highest dreams and, and, and some of the benefits of capitalism uh, are, are eroded if it becomes too capitalistic or if taxes are too high or you're discouraged from seeking innovation. Of course, I mean, and, and, and the ch it's, it's not that capitalism is the perfect system. The, the reality is there is no perfect utopian system. And the challenge with uh, socialism is that it ends up like um, Seattle's uh, you know, autonomous zone uh, where there's a dictatorship, there's fascism, reigns supreme, and then people end up getting shot and there's no, um, there's no one to help you. Uh, so that's one of the most critical arguments for me to understand the basic level of, 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 of politics, which is there's going to be one side that leans um, liberal. There's going to be another side that leans conservative. Now, there's benefits, there's pros and cons to both sides. And I think within a human, a part of us should be liberal and a part of us should be conservative. Now, when it comes to a system of government, it's, it's hard to say that there should be this, you know, there's this case by case understanding. It's easier to rule masses or, or help a society that is full of millions of people when you stick to one label or, or the other. But one of the Peterson arguments that, that helps me with political understanding is that it's, it's difficult to see um, when the right goes too far. It's, it's extremely easy uh, to see when the left goes too far. And right now, that would be the problem, in my opinion. The left is going way too far, and it's, it's destroying things, especially history. You, you bring a good point, Rajan. Um, it's, it's almost like if you, are, if you have multiple political parties and you don't have a particular positioning, it's, it's, difficulty, it's difficult to have consistency um, in in spreading awareness around the message. So as great as it would be for every party to say, topic to topic, we will change and, and we will do what's best for humanity. 
um, it, it, that's not very easily marketable. So instead, we, we have parties having positioning statements around certain key issues. And I think the problem becomes if people identify with being liberal or conservative. So I, I don't identify with any political party or, or ideology. I, I just, I guess I'm a humanist and I, I, w I want to see the pros and cons to every side. Um, that was just I, having a conversation yeah. about that with a yeah. the other day. It's like, if I say I'm a Republican, all of a sudden now, everything a Republican believes in is now attributed to me. If I say I'm a, I'm a Democrat, now everything a Democrat believes and it's like, well, that's not actually the case. I'm, I'm all for, you know, uh, I'm all for this, uh, but I'm also not really sure about this. And I probably wouldn't have people do this, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't, I don't wish a political career on anyone. I mean, that's an extremely difficult position. Um, but I'm like you, I, I'm all for the party of critical thought and, and intelligence. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe one or two people shouldn't be at the very top. Maybe it should be a committee of people uh, 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 um, who focus on, uh, the one thing I do like, uh, I do love about uh, American constitutional values is the power of the individual. To me, um, that goes far beyond Judeo-Christian beliefs and it, it, it goes into uh, what we know as, you know, some of the oldest religious thought in the world, which, which would be Eastern philosophy and more specifically Hinduism. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say uh, just, you know, when you experience losing your ego in the depths of meditation, you, you experience just your own consciousness or energetic force without being Kevin in tech or who's, who's Australian. When you experience that, then it, start, it starts to make you question what you identify with. So I, I think far too many people are identifying or being or being labeled and, and almost constricted. Um, and, and that's a lot of the, the cause of many problems in this world is as people identifying far too strongly with a political ideology or, or religion. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the yeah. challenges is, well, you could even statistically map it out. Uh, people start out liberal when they're younger and as they get, they get older, older, usually 30s and beyond, and you start paying taxes and learning how this government works, then you start to become more Republican conservative. Uh, it's just, you can map this kind of thing out in an actual uh, fact. And it, it's, it's a, it, an ideology that, that supports uh, free stuff. It tends to, tends to radiate with younger people. And then it's the older, more educated people and experienced who are like, well, who's paying for everything? And how does that actually happen? then you start to turn more conservative. Um, and I, also, it, it's interesting to note that um, statistically, people are happier with some sort of religious um, background or deep meaning in their life. And uh, the uh, progressive um, attitude, even beyond liberalism is progressiveness, it tends to, uh, take religion out of the picture completely as we see with communism, that's their greatest ideal. And uh, of course, their famous quote uh, is that religion is the opiate of the masses. Um, <laughs> it, it doesn't actually seem to be the case. So um, I, don't, I don't teach religious theory um, unless I'm asked to. 
but I do think part of my happiness, part of my contentment in life um, has been the fact that I, I have, I believe in things beyond this world. I guess, yeah, religion has, has been a way to organize the, almost the consciousness of the masses because we, we don't have all the answers. Um, you know, the material world only makes up 5% of this universe. However, that, that wouldn't be the most reassuring way to structure a society with, with a population that doesn't understand the meaning of life. So instead, it makes sense to package the meaning of life in easily digestible, memorable stories that, that strike an emotional chord and that last over time. Uh, but it, I think it's, it might be at odds with developing critical thinking. Um, I remember when I was at a Catholic school, I, I was constantly getting in trouble for, <laughs> for questioning the stories. And I thought, these are great morals, but how, how did the river turn into blood? Um, so I just hope the, the dissemination of religion doesn't affect the ability to think critically. I agree. No one, no one wants to, uh, no one would want to, no intelligent person would want to um, believe in a blind obedience versus intelligent cooperation and critical thought coupled with religion is uh, to me um, intelligent uh, cooperation and, and just kind of uh, buying into what uh, a story says just because it's a story that is the old um, doesn't really work for me. And I think, um, and, and you have it both ways within a religion. In Hinduism, you have people who believe in things just because a story said that that's what you do. And then you have these intelligent thinkers um, like the second president of India. Um, mm. I'm forgetting his name. Uh, Rama, it's not Ramakrishna. Let me just fact check here. Sarvapelli Radhakrishnan. Um, you can see, I, I try to make sure what I say is somewhat factual. Um, Radhakrishnan, who uh, has amazing work on, on religious theory and, and, and thought, but also uh, knowing that, and he says this directly in one of his lectures, if you... If you, if you don't take the religious thought from long ago and, and reapply it to today in today's standards with modifications, then you're not understanding um, the, the religion at all. Mm. I thought that was a beautiful way to put that what we're saying now. But things need to be read in context. And um, I think it, it's dangerous if texts that were written thousands of years ago with society and, and moral systems very different to today and and written in a way that is open to interpretation in this sort of poetic emotional visual language it's i think it's it's dangerous to take that as a, a definitive answer um and, and not to not to shape it in today's context yeah absolutely i mean it's kind of foolish too you know you have a lot of um, ceremony in Hinduism where um, banana leaves, for example, just for one example, they're, they're sacred. 
Um, but banana leaves were available at the time that the, that the thing was written. And if you don't have a banana leaf, you're probably going to be okay. And, and, you know, the deities aren't going to uh, be upset with you. Uh, it's, so you hope that people realize that. So maybe, you know, it's not self-evident, which is, is why um, perhaps pundits and uh, 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 keepers of scriptural knowledge are needed to explain that, you know, while we can interpret it, uh, we can read it this way, I'm going to, you know, interpret it this way, and then that's what works for me. That's one of the things I like about Hinduism the most is uh, it's not, there is no ecclesiastical body of, of people um, saying that this is what you do, and, and yeah. if you do it this way, you're a good Hindu, if not, or with Buddhism, you do it this way, or you're a bad Buddha, Buddhist. Um, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't happen like that because there is no one pontificating uh, ecclesiastically. So while with we, where you have Abrahamic religions are, are the opposite. It's, it's, it, there is in fact a body um, that is saying you are going to do it this way or else. And, um, you know, Eastern philosophy is just not down with the whole uh, eternal hell thing, and, and neither am I. I. That was one of the things I, I disliked the most about uh, Catholicism. You know, the, this this threat of eternal hell. I, I just that could that didn't make sense to me because I thought there were, there will be people in this world without access to to Catholicism. Uh, does that mean they are deemed to eternal hell? Mm -hmm. I, I just didn't think that was fair. Um, I, I myself pull a lot of wisdom and knowledge from uh, Hinduism and, and Buddhism. I, it feels more like a philosophy and a sharing of uh, wisdom through time. Um, having said that, I, I still wouldn't call myself a Buddhist. Um, I pull from all aspects of life and, and see what works for me. But I think it is interesting that people have this need for meaning. Religion has existed since the start of humanity. Um, and I, I guess that's, that comes from being the, the most conscious thing in our known system, our need to feel some sort of meaning. Um, how, how have you sort of answered that question or, or approached it, Rajan, of, of trying to understand meaning in, in this life? Well, that's a, I have to back up and say that's an extremely profound thing to say, that um, meaning is the most conscious thing um, known to man. And, and um, so it, that's so true. I mean, you have, you have religion, but what you have deep underneath religion is you have a, a system or structure guiding you towards meaning and purpose. Um, and so if you get rid of the religious part of it, um, you have the meaning and purpose that is left and you have uh, the, the mythological tale of uh, fighting evil in order to attain, um, uh, you know, uh, the hero status and saving your community from which you came from and then leaving a legacy behind for future generations. So it's understandable to not to not label you not want to label yourself a buddhist or, or, or whatever but just say well i'm i'm after the deepest meaning the deepest consciousness and and the greatest uh, rewards of of selfless service and that's my religion and i think that's the ultimate 
um, place to get to. And I think if you were to ask Siddhartha that if, if, if he was trying to, um, you know, promulgate a religious structure, he would say, get the hell away from me. Um, it's, it's, it's more so the fact that to me, religious power is power of meaning and, and, and purpose. And, and, and to me, that's, um, uncovering, um, or, or peering into consciousness. And, and, and that it, to me is the greatest, um, religious tale of all the fact that you can become your own, um, explorer into yourself beyond mind and then, and then witness what, uh, you know, the, 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 the viewing of consciousness and then saying, okay, I'm going to identify as that and then use ego and emotion and, and mind and brain as a tool um, in which to live the most prosperous life I can, hopefully in a definition that means selfless service to other people. That, that's my level. That's where I, I deeply find my core um, is, is, is as an explorer, but an explorer of consciousness, not of um, things, most things of the world. And, and I think that's a good, I think that's a good way to describe it. Yeah, I feel like religion is the, the mainstream way that most people begin to explore their consciousness. But when religion becomes too strongly tied with identity and, um, and, a, and a belonging to a particular community, it, it can become restrictive to getting closer to the truth or, or developing um, a, a more unique take on the nature of reality and, and your role within it. Um, you know, if, you are, if you belong to a certain community, there are certain values and belief systems that that community will have. And, and if you're identified with that set of ideals, it, and there are consequences for going against those, it, you don't it go towards it. You don't go towards it, no. So I think that's the only thing I'm worried about. Having said that, it's, there, there's so much acquired knowledge over time that for me, I'm actually quite interested in, in all the religions. But to me, religion is a man-made um, system of stories and belief systems in order to better understand the world, just like you could argue philosophy might be or, or science might be. Um, but we're, they're all trying to do the same thing to get a, a greater understanding of, of meaning and, and purpose of our existence in this world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, a better understanding of, of what it means to engage with life and, and what is life and then, or what are we engaging with is, is the first question. And then the second question is usually what am I? So I think the nice thing about the nice thing about, I mean, that's, I think the profound aspect of Eastern philosophy says, let's reverse those questions. Ask first, who am I? And then what is the world that I am engaging with now that I know who I am? I think Abrahamic religions, um, Christianity, Christianity, Judaism, um, and, and Islam, I think they um, ne almost never ask the second question. They just say, okay, what is the world I'm engaging with? And how can I best do that with the help of my deity, who is eternally separate from me? Um, yeah. 
but but then you have those mystics and you know in, in in each of those religions you have the mystics who say wait 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 first first become one with the deity and then engage with life um but those are few far in between and buried deep within the, the text so uh most mainstream abrahamic uh, thought is 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 just what the book says and that's how i engage with life i'm i'm eternally separate from the deity and and the thing i loved about uh, love about hinduism or loved about it when i first heard it was that you you become the deity uh yeah you you become the deity so you from what i understand you keep re reincarnating in, in various forms um until you no longer need to learn anything else at which point you go back to the source is that, is that right rajan yeah i would say that's a pretty good understanding of it just on the top level but i would break it down and say not of other forms but you reincarnate from my understanding of the the text is you reincarnate uh, as a human specifically um oh, okay it's, uh, my, and, and my my guru's guru um i think clearly explained in his opinion um, of his own mystical interpretation that um, souls, uh, human souls don't evolve from lesser beings. So we don't come back as an insect. We don't pass in between lives like that. In fact, he actually has a specific scripture. He has a specific text um, that he mystically wrote um, that explains animals and, and things like that are actually group souls, uh, multiple people. Um, actually taking kind of a rest in life, which I thought that was interesting. And that's a, a topic for another uh, discussion, but uh, you, you, um, you, you would reincarnate as a human until you, you understand three aspects of life, which are um, uh, resolving karma, um, living through Dharma and, and realizing the self or attaining enlightenment to which you would attain moksha, which is liberation from rebirth. And then you uh, go into the astral world or, or the, the next world, uh, of which there are three worlds. Um, and um, the completion of all three worlds uh, as an individual brings you to what's known as Vishvagrasa, which is complete merger with um, a, de a, a, a creating force. Okay, that's a lot of uh, new words. Karma, Dharma, uh, abolition from self, moksha. Um, what, what is Dharma, sorry? Uh, dharma can be interpreted in different ways, uh, mainly two. Um, um, your, your individual journey, your individual purpose through life, you, what you're supposed to do. Um, and then Dharma in regards to um, a specific uh, life path, I mean, you know, the Dharma of an engineer. Um, is not the same thing as the engineer's dharma. And in Hinduism, is there there is free will, um, and it's seen that you are occupying the body you should occupy. There, there's, is, is there anything left to to complete chance, or is it seen as you're occupying this specific bodily vessel for a reason? Okay, so if I were to. Um, be born into a body and my goal through life is to get to the top of the mountain the top of the mountain the way to get there is is infinite but um, all paths lead to the top okay so you mean do you think 
all forms of consciousness, they are, they are moving towards increasing levels of consciousness. Um, whether it's a bacteria or a dog or a plant, uh, to me, something is conscious if it has an awareness over its environment and I guess there's a will to survive and there's avoidance of pain. But the trajectory it has is, is that it grows in ability to manage complexity and, and its environment and, and grow through difficulty. So to me, I think the meaning of life is to grow in consciousness. Sure. That, that, and, and indeed, uh, that is the, the Hindu definition of the meaning of life. It's, it's to attain moksha and then eventually attain vishvagrasa. So you, you, you are here on earth to expand your consciousness. That, that, is, that is why you are here. And, and, and how you do that is up to, up to you. Um, and no matter what you do, you never go backwards. You always go forwards. Even um, someone on death row for murder is going forwards exactly the way they were supposed to. That is not a backward step in a lifetime. Isn't it interesting I thought, that we, uh, we don't perceive reality directly? It's, it's all information coming through our senses. Our brain translates it and creates the image. I just thought that was very... Uh, it changes your worldview when you understand that. Indeed, because you can, you if you if you step out of that paradigm and perceive life the way it is, the way it is, um, you see pure consciousness and and you understand that that there's an inherent perfection to everything. Um, and and the moment that there's not per perfection, it's because you intervened with it. And it means almost that there's no quite objective reality. The Correct. The reality is relative to the perceiver and the, uh, the spectrum of sensory input that it, it can handle. Yeah, so. it, absolutely. It's a subjective world when you, when, you, when you get to it. And that is free will. However, there's an overarching um, uh, endpoint. And, and you, you, so according to my study, you can safely say, you don't have a choice in your own evolution. You don't have a choice in your own evolution. What, what do you mean? You will, you will raise your consciousness whether you like it or not. But you could increase the rate of um, increasing consciousness, couldn't you? Correct. So some people, I guess, just maybe they learn from wisdom, acquired knowledge over time, and they're able to increase the rate of learning. But regardless, there is progress. Correct. Okay. Interesting. Um, how about the mind? How, how do they think about dreams in these Eastern philosophies? Dreams is a, an interesting subject that I've never quite been able to uh, intellectualize and, and, and I'll, 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 revert to um, Carl Jung, who's, who is a man far smarter um, and, and wiser than I, um, who had a difficult time explaining dreams. <laughs> he had the, uh, the collective unconscious, right? Was that, was that him or was that Jung? That, I was getting... Carl Jung indeed uh, came up with the collective unconscious. Um, and, uh, you know, 
dreams have never been an area that uh, I've divested enough interest in to then speak on. So um, it, it was in my training to not focus on dreams. We, we specifically stayed away from, from that study and um, attempted to just master meditation and uh, uh, behavioral psychology. Yeah, I think even though it's difficult to understand, I think the dreams are an indication of how powerful the mind really is. You know, we can create these realities that are indistinguishable from our own and we can be talking with characters that we have created in real time <laughs> and not be aware of that and we create these universes that defy the laws of physics and yet with our consciousness shouldn't we shouldn't we know that this is a dream and yet we don't so it just sort of gives me a uh, indication of how powerful the mind is and potentially that it is, there's a potential that your consciousness is separating from your physical body in a dream um, or, or that a part of the consciousness is going somewhere else. Because otherwise, shouldn't, if it's the same consciousness as, as a waking state, shouldn't your brain be more aware that it is in an altered state where the, the natural rules, uh, laws of reality are not, are not the same as what you're used to? Well, I could ask a question that would, you know, make you think and reflect for a few more years. Uh, <laughs> isn't, isn't, or what is not consciousness? What is not consciousness? I mean, you could argue the dream is part of the consciousness. You could argue that everything in this physical reality is a dream. You could argue that. Uh, <laughs> you could argue that i mean if if we're not perceiving anything directly and it's all just sensory input of information and it's being translated by my mind um yeah we, we could exist in some sort of simulation <laughs> so but either way i think um i went from i guess, I guess naturally being a creative free thinking person up until my teen years um, to then becoming an accountant at, at a big four and, uh, and then going into the corporate and tech world and having that side suppressed and going completely logical. Yeah. And, you know, this uh, idiom of, you know, trust your gut. I, I just thought, okay, that's just not scientific and that's a bit irrational. It wasn't until I made the connection that your subconscious is keeping you alive and it is pulling in more information than your logical mind ever could. And your senses are capturing everything and it accounts for much more of your actual behavior than does pure logical reasoning. When I made that connection, I no longer felt the need to rationalize everything. I felt like I could, could trust my instinct a bit more because it's a combination of all my logical knowledge, all my experience, all my subconscious dreams um, in, in its full state. So then it, it gave me a comfort in taking an action that I couldn't justify. Fascinating. Absolutely. I mean, in, in our terms, uh, you went from the conscious to subconscious uh, understanding and then said, well, I'm going to skip all that 
and go straight to superconscious and subsuperconscious. And basically, that those are your minds of uh, uh, those are levels of mind of intuition and flow and and mindfulness and observation, attention, and uh, just trust right so once you once you learn as you did that everything that is 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 as socrates said you're 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 remembering you're not necessarily always learning you're remembering so um if, if you can trust that that is happening um you can kind of bypass subconscious understanding and conscious understanding and go straight to intuition and and straight to knowing mm. I mean, I, it's like, how do you rationalize when you're in the depths of meditation and you're in the perspective of space looking down on earth and you see this blue marble slowly turning? I don't know how to rationalize that. <laughs> I, I remember how that feels. Um, I could have hallucinated it. My consciousness could have gone to another dimension. I, I, I don't know. But it I did. think it's, it did. Well, we have seven uh, um, mapped out dimensions in the mystical world of psychology um, or in mystical psychology uh, or, or meta metaphysics. Um, well, maybe that's not metaphysics, but it is meta psychology. Um, and I think Jung um, had dimensions of his own. And uh, what we did in the monastery was take Carl Jung's work and, and expand it. I think Jung had five and we expanded it to seven. Um, and uh, for example, the uh, Rokas, the first dimension is um, seeing my table in front of me, seeing the wall here. The second dimension is understanding that there's an inner to the wall, there's beams and everything, and there's, um, uh, 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 what's it called, the, the insulation. Um, and then third dimension is uh, more thought and, and feeling. Uh, uh, or awareness of another person. Fifth and sixth and seventh dimension are the the slow uh, but direct paths of empathy and and becoming another person, becoming a room, and then becoming consciousness itself as as like the deepest level um, of of dimensions. So, uh, yeah. What do you mean by becoming the room? How do you become a room? <laughs> Well, that goes back to my question. What is not consciousness? I mean, you could, argue, consciousness. you could argue everything is conscious. I mean, if, if at its base molecular level, everything is just an arrangement of energy and it's mainly empty space inside the atoms. Correct. So if, if, um, if, if deep aspects of meditation is getting to consciousness itself, and you are consciousness and consciousness is um, also the universe. And we know that the universe is, is just comprised of this empty space and everything that we're looking at has most of this empty space. We can start to link um, scientifically uh, with mystical knowledge that consciousness is um, the universe and everything. So, mm that is how you would transfer or transcend the first dimension to the second to the third and get beyond um, physical matter and then go into someone's mind and then uh, beyond that um, you know transcending feeling emotion um, and then becoming intuition itself or you know just becoming the universe 
I guess it is in the depths of meditation, it's such a pure experience of consciousness because you don't have gravity, you don't have hearing, you don't have sight. You're freeing your mind from all external stimuli and you're getting the base, just essence of consciousness. Just, yeah, uh, uh, absolutely. Specifically, you're getting rid of space, form, and time. Space, form, and time. Have you ever tried a uh, sensory deprivation tank, Raven? I have not. Um, a friend of ours in Colorado invited me to, to uh, go to one, and, and, I, and I didn't get the chance to, to do it. You should try it. I believe they first devised one to study consciousness because you can free the body from gravity. Uh, it's, it's, all, it's in a pool of Epsom salt. You're in a womb-like environment, so you're floating. There's no sound it's pure darkness you are literally there with your own pure consciousness so i think for someone who's you know so trained in in meditation it'll be an interesting experience to not have to feel gravity i would love that and if not then the um the minerals and the salt will be will be great for for healing <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people do it um yeah i've been really interested in these alternative health modalities, I guess you could call it. It started with meditation and then it flowed into different sound baths and I was quite obsessed with that. So I started trying out gong, um, Tibetan bowls, crystal bowls, tuning forks. And then that led to the um, sensory deprivation tanks. And then last week I tried ecstatic dance for the first time, which was quite the experience. What is that? Um, okay, so ecstatic dance, it's a, it's a form of dance that connects your, I would say your mind, body and soul at once. So you're not allowed to have your phone, you're not allowed to speak, uh, you're there. Last week I happened to be in Epping Forest, barefoot in nature on the solstice, so that was, that was a bit different from usual. Did they and, ask you uh, to take off your clothes? <laughs> not an orgy. <laughs> <laughs> But if you wanted to, you could, I'm sure you could strip down to your underwear if you wanted to. I can, I can. Yeah, it was very freeing to be in a forest environment. But it's, it's also drug-free, alcohol-free. Tell me about, so is there, is there music and then you're, it's like the, it's spontaneous, whatever you feel, however you feel like moving, you move? Exactly. So it's typically a mix of music that has broad uh, spectrum of emotion. So some music was a bit shamanic, some was tribal and heavy on drums, some was very joyful, free Celtic sounds. Cool. Um, so the, the idea was just to connect with your body, not have any distractions, be fully present yeah. and just express however the hell you want. Yeah, absolutely. It was amazing. I, I, I've never seen it like that. And I think from, from seeing how you express yourself and then once in a while seeing how others express themselves, you realize what makes you unique in your own expression. Absolutely. But it also it's completely fun just to express so freely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's liberating because, I, I, you know, as I, um, as I meet more and more people and especially with clients, um, I, the longer I have a client, the more, um, you know, um, the more we kind of drop the barriers of teacher and student and 
for example, you know, going to clients' homes and, and them coming to my home and things like that. And, um, I start to realize more about how I am or, or how my character acts and expresses itself. And uh, the, the, it's an interesting study to, to be able to observe other people very well um, helps you then kind of compare that to how you um, are. And um, a lot of people are closed off. A lot of people are, 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 they have this wall and they, and they're tight and they're tense and they don't want to uh, reveal who they really are. They, they have secrets and, and they can't be too open about everything. And there's these protective barriers from, from exposing the real person um, with, but with covered with societal um, uh, pleasantries and, and uh, basic forms of, of uh, uh, I don't know, um, sheaths of societal agreements. Uh, it's like, you know, let's get past all that and then see what the hell's really wrong with you. I don't know. Um, why, why do you think people can't, don't, don't feel like they can be fully themselves? Is it, is it we have very strong uh, ideologies around what an ideal person should embody and, and everybody is trying to move towards that? And, and if it doesn't fit that, they don't feel they can show it? Or is it because, you know, most of our life is, is taken up by our work and, and many corporate environments maybe encourage a certain type of personality trait or, or behavior? It's, uh, those are definitely um, reasons of what's going on. I think I, think I, I, uh, I think if I trace back my monastic training enough and, and say, okay, well, who, who, who did I used to be? Um, I think it ultimately relies on uh, dependence of the ego. So if you're, if you're living in the world, not understanding this, this, this truth behind reality, you are believing in your story so much, you have to keep your story alive and strong. And, uh, and, and I think when I um, went through the a dark night of the soul for three months and, and detached from ego, I think I was then a different person. I know I was then a different person afterwards. I was who I really was. Um, and ever since then, I guess I haven't um, been shy to express spontaneity and creativity and, and um, not knowing or just observing and just being the ultimate student or, or the eternal student. Whereas, whereas in, with the ego, the ego has to be a certain way. It has to, it has to portray itself. It has to defend certain beliefs. Um, and it can't be um, overpowered or else it notices its own demise. And that's, 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 that's like a virus to it. But I was also kind of a bit more open and free of a person and self-expressive before that happened. So... Um, perhaps it's a combination of just slowly re revealing the layers of who you really are inside 
uh, and people are still stuck on the outer layer of the onion. I don't so know. You stopped, uh, so you sort of stopped identifying with your ego. Yeah, with a story. I mean, um, and I and I embrace kind of you know being more of a blank slate and and taking on whatever form I need to. I guess more of a chameleon type of consciousness. Um, uh, you know, I feel like I can I can um, talk intellectually with with very smart people like yourself, or I could you know, um, hang out with, with friends who, you know, maybe they just drive a truck for a living and, and you know, we watch football. And that's the, the, one of the benefits of being a chameleon. Yeah. I feel lucky to be able to have trained myself to be able to have chameleon like abilities. But yeah. I think it just comes from practice, you know, just surrounding yourself with different sorts of people and just having a natural curiosity and, and, uh, and knowing that everyone can teach you something, you know, everyone's had a unique life experience. So, yeah. you know, I feel lucky in London, I've spoken with gypsies, uh, former gang members, uh, water technicians, drug dealers for different reasons, but uh, <laughs> um, all sorts of people, bankers, lawyers, accountants. And it's just so interesting to see their lens. And I think more people should, talk with people from other fields and I, I don't see that enough and I see you have this you have the typically rational logical intelligent people and then you have the more spiritual religious people but you don't see enough of, of both where hybrids understand neuroscience and, they, and they're interested in, in science and logic but then they have this spiritual side this ability to question things go outside of convention and I think you're seeing that grow more and more, but I think we need more of that. Agreed. And you're, you're a great example of this hybrid, what do you, I don't know what you call it, this new age, modern man. <laughs> I mean, I think you'd call it a philosopher. Is that what it is? Okay. I mean, Socrates is, is most well known for saying, I don't know, and, and hanging around the high society and also um, average people and learning from both. Socrates obviously is just one, one story of, uh, of, of that in history, but um, all throughout our um, Indian lineage uh, in our order, uh, in the monastic order I was in, I should say, um, the, the gurus in that lineage were um, the same type of people. They, had, they said, you know, we know not, um, you know, know thyself and, and, um, everyone is your teacher, even a crazy old lady with an umbrella. Uh, there's a, an actual story of one of the monks of the lineage, um, you know, uh, learning a great lesson from a, a complete psychopath. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know why it reminds me of, I was in near Brighton a few weeks ago and, I forgot my jumper and it was very cold and there were, there was a, a couple sitting on the bench sorting out all these clothes and I was sitting next to them and I said, Oh, it's good. You brought so many clothes because I, I forgot mine and it's cold now. And they said, Oh, we're actually homeless and we're sorting through our clothes and I had no idea. And uh, she said, Oh, no, here, have two, have these two. So they instantly offered me two of their shirts. Yeah. And I said, no, no, you keep them. I have plenty. It's a short train right away. And they said, no, no, uh, we've got too much to carry, so we're going to leave these here anyway. 
And so I ended up accepting a shirt that says Save Our Souls. <laughs> and, uh, we took the same train ride and I learned all about what it's like to be, to be homeless. And um, mm -hmm. the lady actually, she said, are you homeless? And I was quite surprised because I was carrying a, I don't know, hundred pound duffel bag and I was not very dressed up, but I, I didn't look dirty or- Yeah, you were well composed. Well, well composed, yes, uh, I would like to think. Um, and I said, oh no, I'm not homeless. Why, why would you ask? And she said, because nobody speaks to us unless they're homeless. Sure. It's crazy. But, um, so uh, I think, yeah, uh, people attach far too much to their ego. And if, uh, if they just engage their curiosity and, and try not to judge, you know, it can happen to anyone. Some people have a bigger head start in life. Some people have more advantages. Some people have disadvantages. And, and I can't, can't judge them. So I, I just try not to judge people. Um, Indeed. I, I think one of the greatest spiritual um, powers is the ability to uh, not um, judge people, but judge yourself. Um, be, be a higher standard yourself. And... and um, just let, let that reign as your greatest judgment and, and leave people out of it. People have nothing to do with, with your individual story. Um, and I think it's a, most people nowadays are borderline narcissists um, expecting other people to care about them um, when it's, it's quite the opposite. No one gives a damn about you, maybe except for your mother. And when you realize that, it's quite empowering because you're no longer needing external validation as your source of power. You've actually lost all power. If, if the only way you can derive power is from others, you're sure. always at the second call of, of other people's approval. Check um, the words this feeling, right out of my mouth. Yeah. I think a lot of society make, tries to make you feel not good enough. Um, not, not always in a bad intentioned way, like say your parents, Asian parents typically will push you academically and, and constantly compare you and then push you to, to do prestigious jobs. The but average if, household income for Asians in America <laughs> is $78,000. Uh, Americans, it's closer to 60 and uh, every other minority closer to 37,000. Well, so yeah, it has an effect, but this, this feeling of uh, not feeling good enough or not being encouraged to pursue what makes you happy. So typically you're encouraged to go into law, consulting, doc, being a doctor. Yeah, medicine. And if, if you so happen to like creative fields, that's not encouraged. So I'd, I'd like to see some more, you know, really successful uh, Asians in, in mainstream media to pave the way for, the, for those Asians that... Uh, that have that natural inclination. Um, I love I love the disparity. I, I think it's a great teaching, um, and to me, it proves um, that racial inequality is uh, bullshit, and that if minorities such as Asians can and, and Indians um, can become um, America's elite, uh, and and they're not even from here in most cases, or first generation, second generation. Um, oftentimes starting from nothing um, and working their way up to the top is the definition of mm. uh, American opportunity and, or Western opportunity. And I absolutely love the, that disparity.
and I think it should be taught more instead of uh, hidden underneath numbers. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure where, why the media seem to not like immigrants because immigrants tend to start businesses and, and boost the economy and, and they're very hardworking. Um, I think like you said, I thought for a second actually, I've never thought about this before, but you said um, that society tends to um, show you the worst side or, or make you feel somehow inferior. Uh, I think you said something like that. And I think, yeah, so people tend to gain their feeling of importance or, or power from a lot of people from putting others down or from feeling better than someone in comparison. Okay, so that idea made me think of marketing. And, and, and I think society is basically one big sales pitch. And every individual is the consumer of whatever society is selling. And marketing itself is designed to um, produce happy results, but it has to point out all these flaws and problems um, like a good um, uh, um, copy would, uh, especially on social media. It starts out with a problem, a story, an upliftment, whatever, and this product is the very thing that saved my life. Um, I think society reflects that, you know, kind of like a microcosm, macrocosm, of macro, micro reflection. Um, and mainstream uh, surface society uh, is just an ad. It's just a big uh, sales pitch. And, and only when you get underneath that and away from that marketing world, do you see that there's, um, there's other things to hold dear. Um, and care about more than what's on the surface. And it's it, maybe everything reflects this hero, heroic journey um, in, in any, every level of society or life itself. I, I don't know. I guess it's just uh, concerning if you derive your view of reality from media, which you know is not exactly completely objective or, or might have different uh, agendas to to that of just talking about the truth well and the uh, media we know itself is, is they have an agenda they have to have an agenda or else no one would watch it and like i i mentioned in this podcast humanprogress.org and um it's one of the most positive uh media outlets in the world probably and no one's heard about it so yeah. the the very basis of media and news specifically is that which news that which causes an emotional reaction, um, or, uh, and usually that's that's negativity and that's shock value, and uh, that's never going to change. It, it's never never going to change. It's a survival instinct. Um, you know, if you forget the footprints of a lion, you'll die. If you forget the smell of a flower, you won't, right? Um, hmm. So I think naturally we tend to remember negative experiences more than positive ones. But knowing that, if you have an awareness of that, then when you do have a negative thought, then you, I guess, have that in perspective because you know, okay, naturally I'm going to be thinking a bit more negatively. Um, and it just makes you more conscious of what sort of media you are consuming. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I like that a lot. Very well said. Yeah, I'm gonna um, 
I'm going to ask to step away because yeah. I have to um, do some things with the family. Yourself. Yeah. Your is coming along well. <laughs> but that's been really interesting. How, yeah. I wasn't expecting that. But, okay. It's great how both of you flowed really well uh, with your thoughts. Um, yeah, I just didn't want to interrupt because it seemed like it was going really well. Um, and we'll have to do it again very soon. That was an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you for coming on and spending your time, Kevin. Yeah, thanks for setting it up. And uh, I think it's a good thing you're doing for society and for young men and women. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, it's very interesting to have these sort of talks, which I think uh, as a society, we should, we should have more of. Will you come on again so we can talk more? I will. I'd love to. Um, yeah. Yeah, great. for sure. Okay, great. So, so till next time. <laughs>